So a reading from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in the rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely of their own. They urged gently, uh, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had heard earlier, made a beginning to bring also to the completion of this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he has become poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your urge Eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that ones might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. As the present time your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what will be what you need. The goal is equality as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Thanks to thanks be the to thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus does not only welcome our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which is administered but in honour in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he's the Elias, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the church and an honour to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about the service to the Lord's people. 
For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you were in Achaia, were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you is in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having so been so confident. So I thought it is necessary necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gifts you have promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Any of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all time, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it is written. They freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing with many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, the others will praise God for the obedience and accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in the prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given you. Thanks be the God for his indescribable gift. I'm the son of a bank manager. I grew up in a saving family. Uh, We were careful with our money. Uh, Security, storing up for a rainy day. These were the mantras inscribed on the hearts of us Harrington children. So when I became a follower of Jesus as a university student, there were lots of things I had to work out. And one of them, was how to think as a Christian about money. Now, at that point in time, generosity was not a part of my vocabulary. I remember when money came up at church, I had the same sort of reaction I had uh, when a pushy salesman comes and knocks on my front door and tries to sell me something I don't want. In a letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul the Apostle urges Christians to excel in the grace of giving. This was a gift I was pretty sure I had no interest in cultivating. But over the years, God's kept teaching me and convicting me from the heart and from the Bible and by his spirit that this is a core area of discipleship that I needed to submit to him in. Now, having been a Christian for over 30 years, there have been two things that have really helped me when it comes to money. First is, God's kept working on my heart The more I get God's mercy to me in Jesus, the more I understand his grace, the more I want to be generous too. Now this applies not just to money, but to all aspects of the Christian life. And the second is, 
plan to give and be practical. Now, Sue and I regularly look and pray at how to use our money and how we can give away more money for gospel ministry. Now, we're now at that stage in life where we give away more than 25% of our income to church, overseas mission and parachurch organisations. My prayer is that God will keep making me more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I am spiritually wealthy because of what Jesus has done for me, so I'm really keen to invest money in gospel ministry so others can get rich too. Good to be with you. Move this microphone. I'm going to pray and then we'll uh, get into uh, this passage, in quite a large passage, wasn't it, that we had looked at? So let's, uh, let's have a, a good look at God's Word together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that we can think about how we are a follower of your Son because you revealed that to us. And today, as we wrestle with kind of a controversial topic, um, a topic that's hard to talk about for me and, uh, and kind of a challenge for us to hear as well, that we'll just have our hearts transform, transformed by the gospel above all else as we open up uh, 2 Corinthians this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I ask you, what is the biggest act of generosity someone has ever done for you? Not necessarily financial, just in whatever way. Just take a moment and think. What is the biggest act of generosity someone has done something for you? It could be a parent, it could be a stranger, a colleague, a friend. What is it? The harder question though, maybe for some of you, is why did they do that? What is the motivation behind being so generous? They saw your need, they love you, they felt guilty about something, it made them feel feel good. What was the reason, I wonder? If we think about humanity, we have a great capacity to be generous. Not always do we do it, but we have that capacity and sometimes we see that uh, very much so when we, when we are in a crisis. When there's a crisis and people need help, we see, we kind of gather together. Sometimes we provide help and are generous in ways where there's too many cans of food and they can't actually, we don't have any use for them. We can be generous. Motivation can be varied on why. A few years back, World Vision um, tapped into one of the very core reasons why we, we why we give in one of their campaigns. I, I remember it very clearly. It was a really interesting um, campaign. It was it's and what they did in all the ads was they had people talk about giving to World Vision and why it's really helpful people who are in need and you need to support them. And at the end of every person speaking, they expressed how the best reason to give is because how good it made you feel. Tapping into that idea about giving makes you feel good. I uh, uh, discovered an article online 
called The Science of Generosity, Why Giving Makes You So Happy. And this article talked about how when we give, it does actually make us happy. And there's actually research that's been done which has shown that actually people who give have been uh, generally happier than those who just want to receive. Interesting study. Not that I investigate the validity of that study, but just thinking about those ideas and why we give. Today, our series in following Jesus' discipleship, what it means to follow him, we are looking at a very specific issue of financial giving. But what it's actually about is our motivation. And how we respond to the grace of God. Which is how we started this series, uh, being saved by grace. So that's what we're going to do today. And I hope that you can come along with me. But there's a very good chance if you're here for the first time, if, if you're not necessarily a follower of Jesus and you're visiting and you think, are you kidding? I've come to church and they're talking about money. You've already lost me. I'm going to switch off for 20 odd minutes now or however long you go for because I'm not interested. That's kind of valid. I want to one last ditch hope for you to maybe listen in because uh, we had um, uh, a conference I was at about church a little while ago. We got this, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, document little uh, infogram about the way Australians think about religion and Christianity and a whole bunch of things. Really interesting is research um, done by McCrindle Research um, using uh, uh, authentic um, survey and study results. Um, and, and what they actually did, and they did this in January this year, one of the things they looked at were the top five behaviour blockers for people not wanting to come and consider Christianity. It's kind of this behaviour, they see that, no, I'm not interested in Christianity. One of them, 40%, 40% of them influenced by the way Christians think about money, issues around money, 40%. It's one of the top five behaviour blockers. There's probably a good reason for that as well. One, because sometimes maybe we've experienced where we've t- spoken about money in an unhelpful way in church, where it's felt like it's been a money grab. Sometimes it could be a misconception and sometimes it's because that's the way it's kind of been presented. But if you're not a Christian or you're a visitor today, what this... Uh, passage in scripture is about for you is not for you to hear oh i've been told i need to give money to the church what we're what you see today and it's a really good reason to come and be here today we see that that outworking of christians is because of a heart issue that we all need to wrestle with and that heart issue is what i'd love you to see today and then it makes a lot of sense about why christians to actually talk about their money because they talk about all of life in God. So that's kind of the framework that I want to think about uh, these two uh, chapters today. I want us to see how following Jesus changes our motivation and heart. And so that has implications for the things that we have. How are we going to do this? Well, Paul is uh, if you picked up in that reading, he's talking to the church in Corinth about a collection. It's kind of known as the collection. About how they, uh, they, they are going to... Paul wants to help the church in Jerusalem 
in their trial by getting other churches to collect money to give to them. And what I want us to see today is this, this, uh, these two chapters, they're actually a specific example with profound and universal principles. So what we see here today is not the exact, they did that so we must do that. What we see today in looking at their context and example, how we can think about how we see money. And by extension, where our heart lies. I was uh, very uh, helped by um, Don Carson, a, a very helpful uh, preacher and, and academic who, who pointed out that it's a specific example of profound universal principles. And I really found it helpful the way that he broke this big chapter. I was trying to figure out how do I bring all this to you into three ways. What I want us to do is to see how the Macedonians did their giving. I want us then to see Paul's kind of approach. And then I want us to see how the Corinthians, how they're supposed to get on with doing it and their motivation. So let's uh, let's go that, uh, through it together because we see, first of all, in chapter 8, it'd be really helpful to have it open with you. Um, and it'd be actually helpful to have a booklet there because as we finish up today, my application is a bit different. At the beginning of chapter 8, we see that the Macedonians give in extreme poverty. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Isn't that interesting? Welled up in rich generosity. Time and time again, research into how we give and who gives, have shown one very clear and common fact. Those, by giving proportionally, those who give the most are those that have the least. Every time there's research done into this in the Western world, it it seems abundantly clear that the least you have, the more you give proportionally. In 2010, 2011, there was a study in the UK that showed the poorest 20% give about 3.2% to charity and, and um, the richest 20% give about 0.9. In 2007 in the US, the poorest 20 gave 4.3 and their annual income was around 10,500, while the richest 20% give about 2.1. Somehow, when we have less, we are uh, less attached to what we have. And maybe we can see the important things when we don't have it. That should be a little bit shocking. And here we have the Macedonians, desperate, I think's the word, desperate to give. And they did this first and foremost because they were a disciple of Jesus. Have a look at verse 5. They exceeded our expectations they gave themselves first of all to the lord and then by the will of god also to us he's paul's telling the corinthians see the macedonians they gave themselves to god 
That's the principle, that's the framework that everything flows out of for all of life. When you're a follower of Jesus, you give him everything and you have clarity that everything you have has been given to you by God. That's an amazing principle that they had. And the result of this is because the Macedonians have done that, Paul wants the Corinthians to see that model, to see their way and to follow in it. Verses 6 and 7, we urge Titus, just as uh, he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in love, we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Make sure that you guys go, wow, look at those Macedonians, their generosity... And you take it on board for yourselves. See, what he's saying is, it's a good idea to be known for generosity. Churches are known for different things and different good things. For great teaching. For uh, passion in prayer. For sending out people into the gospel work. Uh, Trinity Network, we've planted nine churches now. In many circles, we're known as a church that wants to plant churches and keep planting churches. That's what kind of we're known for on one level. But being known for that is good, but you've got to be known for your generosity. That's what Paul's saying. See that you excel in this grace of giving. So that's a good example. That's all well and good, the Macedonian example. But then we actually get to the real example. The example above all examples. It's time to see God. Verses 8 and 9. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. See, when you truly sit at the foot of the cross, when you realise that God himself has sent his son, that God has poured himself out for you, that he's emptied himself, that he's come and took all our idolatry, our rebellion and our sin on himself, out of love, that he loved us so much that he take it on himself and die for us so that we can be reconciled to God. He was rich. He has all, he's the Lord of all, but for your sake, he's saying to the Corinthians, he became poor, he lowered himself to death on the cross so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Not in financial gain, that is irrelevant and unimportant and nowhere near what matters in your spiritual life, in relationship with God. Is there anything more rich than being with God into all eternity? That is what matters, is the grace of God. God giving us something we don't deserve, Jesus himself. That's why I said today, 
um, at the beginning that that is what matters for all of us to hear, whether you're not really sure where you are with God or whether you've been following Jesus all your life. We think about everything, including money, in light of the grace of God in Jesus, what he has done for us. It saves us and then it transforms us in our actions. This passage, Paul is talking about how they're going to do this money thing for the church that needs it. And as he does that, he uses one word over and over and over again, doesn't he? Do you know what that word is? Have you seen it there? It's really interesting. It comes up time and time again. It's grace. He keeps talking about grace. And it's obvious over and over again, when he's talking about money, he keeps on going back to something that's a gift. That's not deserved. 18 times in 2 Corinthians, 10 times in these two chapters, grace, the Greek word is charis, because sometimes it's not said as grace in this this passage specifically, we see grace mentioned. It's that important and it transforms our thinking. Verses 1 and 4, it's a kind of a privilege. 6 and 7 and verse 9. And then in 16 and 19, it's an offering. And then in chapter 9, in verse 8 and 14 and 15, grace is there. We see our financial giving as an act of grace because of the bigger grace. Jesus giving his life for us that saves us. That is the framework. That is the principle That is why we can never talk about money in a way that's manipulative or a money grab or in a way that makes it all about doing good so you can earn favour with God. It's a tragedy if someone comes into church who doesn't know Jesus and thinks, I'll give a bit of money today and at least that'll help me with God when God does not want that to be the case. That is the principle that we need to dearly hold to if we're saved by grace. And then Paul, in the rest of chapter 8, I think, as, as uh, Castle pointed out, he's approaching, he's, he's pointing out his approach to generosity and trying to help the Corinthians see that with a few ideas, a few really important ideas. First of all, in verses 10 and 11, you need to be deliberate. You can't just go, oh, yeah, that grace is good, yeah, that should overflow into how I think about money and then not think about it. There needs to be a plan. Verse 10, here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. They said they were going to do something, and they need to continue on doing it. And I've got to be honest with you, I reckon out of all the things in this, in this sermon I've been thinking about, and personally for me, it's that one that sometimes I think I fall down on, that I'm not as deliberate as I should be. It's the same the next week when we talk about being dependent in prayer. The idea of talking to God sounds really great. The Lord of all, who's made all things, who's come and died for us, wants us to talk to him. I'm down with that. But it doesn't just happen. You've got to... Be deliberate about it. Make plans about it. Secondly, work on your eagerness, he's saying. Verse 12, if the willingness is there, 
the gift is acceptable according to what one has not one has, not according to what one does not have. It's kind of a heart change as God's Spirit has transformed you by grace to transform you into being willing to give your life and so what you have for the work of God. I think that was one of the helpful things that pointed out in the video from Paul Harrington. Harrington, that growing in willingness. You don't just have it and then that's it. You grow in your willingness. The way of thinking about it was, as a kid, one of my jobs was always to wash the dishes. We'd never, ever had a dishwasher. One of the first things I wanted to get when I got married because we never had a dishwasher. We, I had to do the dishes and I was like, I was never, ever willing as a teenager that I can recall. As I was an adult and still at home for those couple of years before I got married, I tried to grow in my willingness because I did get some clarity on this would actually be helpful for me to do the dishes when uh, mum and dad would appreciate it, not just when I'll get around to it. It's actually helpful to wash the dishes before you need to use them again. That's one of the things I've come to realise. You've got to be willing. The third one is, is that we actually do want to think about it. We're not all of a sudden turning into kind of Marxist or uh, uh, kind of communist, equal distribution of wealth in that sense. But we want to think about actually redistributing love for the sake of others who don't have what we have. And that's what um, verses 13 to 15, I think, do point out. Our desire is not that others might be um, relieved while you are hard-pressed. Don't just sacrifice everything so that actually you've got nothing. But that there might be a quality, in the verse 13 says. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too much little. I was trying to think about how could I um, helpfully talk about this. Just say we got to the point in some time down the track where we thought the best thing to do for the gospel was to plant a church in Elizabeth. If we take these principles there, we would, as a church here, want to give a lot of money to make that happen without any expectation that we would get that back. It's an area which maybe for a long time would not be able to be self-funding like we can be much quicker. But if I, if I uh, uh, thought that was a good idea and the leadership team, the network, we went there and we thought to do that, if our hearts by God's grace, we would think about how we can make that financially viable by redistributing our finances. We could do that. Our missionaries, the Rose, who they're in our booklet this month, on the other side of the world in Namibia, we, we're not going to get anything back from them financially, nor should we want to, but we would love to support them. Fourthly, a really important one, and it's a tragedy when it doesn't happen. There should be transparency in the church, Paul's saying, in how money is handled. Another way of saying it is to be above reproach. Don Carson put it, you need to be seen to be clean. Verses 16 to 24 highlight that. I'm not going to go through it in detail, but I want to point out to you, verse 16, thanks be to God, put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. 
For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and his own initiative. So Titus is going because he's entrusted and trusted with the work. And then there are two others that are being sent in verse 18. Someone who is uh, trusted and, and um, praised by the churches. And 21, um, sorry, in verse 22, in addition we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous. So they've been proved. These are two people that are trustworthy. They're going to deal with the collection. It needs to be above reproach. God sees and wants to see you honouring him. Others should see you, that you're responsible, respectful, trustworthy, and there's no impediment to the gospel and dishonouring God. We seek to do that uh, at Grove. I don't think I've ever set up to the front how we deal with the money as it gets circulated when we do our collection at, um, for those who use the buckets at the end of the service. But our process is we have two people who count the money. Two people, not one. And when they count the money together, there's two count sheets that are filled out together that they both check. And as those count sheets are going, one stays with the money and the other one is kept separately to keep accountable. And there's another person at church who's deemed to be responsible, who never does the money counting, who actually then is given the money to bank the money. They have a count sheet, but there's another one separate to them that they know they have not not any responsibility for, so they um, can be above reproach as well. And then the money's banked on Monday. That's us trying to truly apply this principle that we see here, to be above reproach. It's crucially important. So we have some, uh, we have the Macedonians, we have Paul's way that he wants the, the Corinthians to see. So how should the Corinthians, what should their motivation be like in chapter 9? They should get on with the job, they should get it done. It's very clear what he wants to say. The Macedonians are a model, the Corinthians should be a model. It's like all of ministry. You pass on the baton. The way we handle um, giving and being generous, gifts of grace, should be models to others. Verse 1 There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. You get on with getting the job done. He was boasting to them about them saying they wanted to do this. Look, they're doing what you've done. Isn't that great? It's important to finish it. In verse 5, I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. If you promise something, you keep it. As you can. Now, if they had these promises, but in the meantime, the Corinthians church had a whole bunch of people leave and half the church had no more income anymore. Is Paul saying, well, too bad, you made a promise, you've got to keep it. No, he's saying when you've made a promise and you're able to keep it, as, as everything has not changed in that way, you keep your promise. If those circumstances change all that, you keep the promise by doing what you can now with something that you did not foresee. Deliberately following through on the plans, he's saying. And so he goes on to say that really your heart needs to go out. And I hope that you kind of see this through and through. As he said in verse 5, he 
you know, I thought necessary to uh, make sure everything was done, all the arrangements were sorted for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. We should never ever think that we give out of resentment. I, I can't see anywhere in any act of the Christian life, whether it's finances, the way you talk to someone, how you serve at church, how you um, get involved with the people that you catch up with, that there is any room in any way whatsoever for resentment, for bitterness. But it creeps up in all sorts of ways. It challenges us, doesn't it? And the Corinthians' motivation should never, ever have resentment in it. I wonder whether hearing this talk itself is a good test for where you're at. What's your attitude to having a talk like this? Is it annoyance and frustration? Or is it being encouraged by seeing God's word telling us that we're to have generous hearts? That that's what we're to foster. That might be a helpful uh, little assessment for you. Then you get uh, in uh, in the next section, six to eleven, cheerfulness springing out of grace, generosity, and gratitude. Love to just break that passage apart further, but I just want to highlight there in in what you see in verse eight. God, God is a, sorry, verse 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. We just talked about resentment. Now we've got saying, God doesn't care about your money so much. He cares about your cheerfulness in serving him. You decide in your heart what is generous and a response to God's grace and then you do it and you do it cheerfully that is the godly motivation what are other motivations for the Corinthians well it should be because they want to praise God in verses 11 to 14 we see that very clearly it's verse 12 the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the lord's people so it's a practical thing that you do it's got to have worth it's for for the church that really desperately needs it but it goes on to say it's not only supplying the needs of the lord's people but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to god because of the service by which you have proved yourselves Others will praise God. It's a thing to thank God for. Brothers and sisters, I am sometimes amazed at how God has blessed us and the generosity that has been given us in many different aspects of life as we've started and been going for close to 18 months. We should just thank God. It's great that this Saturday night we've got our prayer and thanksgiving night. Come. If you're not going to need, come and give praise and thanks to God for all that he has done for us. That should be a motivation. And then we get to the last verse. Such a simple little sentence. 
which sums it up so succinctly. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's the call of repentance and faith. It's to turn back to God. To see that he has given you life, your faith, the gift from him to trust in Jesus. That is what all of us need to do today and to live by. And that overflows into how we act in the rest of our life. It's what it's all about, that God gives us an indescribable gift. That is what motivates us into everything. That is how we're to think. If you don't know where you stand with God, that's what I want you to go away thinking about today. Maybe you have a little bit clearer understanding of how Christians think about money, but more importantly for you is to see that God's actually given you something far more valuable than any monetary gain. It's Jesus' death, his life for you. So as we wrap up, we, uh, we think about how do I think about generosity. And what I wanted to do is, uh, I took um, a leaflet that we used at TNE a little while ago at Trinity Northeast when um, I was the pastor there to help um, others think about, think, help us all think about the principles of giving. And on your, in your booklets, the page after the outline is actually my application of this passage, the summary of what I've seen in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and how we think about it. How do I think about generosity? Well, first of all, decide whether you follow Jesus or not. Not the everyone just should give. You need to follow Jesus and understand that. And so why do I give? Because God first gave to me. That principle should never leave us. No matter what we're giving to, we're motivated by God's generosity to us. And that's why we're cheerful givers. That We give because of God and what he's done for us. And so as we think about these biblical principles that we've been wrestling with today, I think a simple way to put that, um, uh, to think that through is those three things there. Deliberate, generous and sacrificial. In that little diagram there. We think about all of that with cheerfulness. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I should say, and 9 there. Deliberate, generous and sacrificial. So we know why we give, what God's done for us. We have a way of doing that in a way that is godly, of being deliberate, generous, sacrificial. The third thing that's helpful to think about is the vision and needs of my church, whatever church you're at. And by the way, if you're just visiting us today and you go to another church, apply this for your church. See, to be these three things, deliberate, generous and sacrificial, it's a good idea to know where your church is up to, having confidence that your church is above reproach. It's important that biblical principles that the people of God handle such matters in a God-honouring way. And I think it's a really good idea to understand where your church is heading, what vision they have for the future and how this is practically translates into their immediate and future needs. This should help shape our generosity. That, that most important verse of verses there, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, are put there to remind us of that's how we apply it. 
So specifically at Grove, that's what we're going to do in a couple of weeks' time. We're going to have a great week in a couple of weeks' time where it's um, the, the topic's bold in mission. Now on that week, um, I'm going to help us see what is our future? Where are we heading? What's our vision? Where are we going? What, do we, what matters to us under God? God's plan for the world, how are we expressing that? And we're going to have our first annual general meeting that we have to have. And as we do that, we'll give an opportunity to understand how that relates to our finances so that, that you can understand the vision and needs of our church. We'll do that. Our leadership team will be involved and Andrew Seven, the business manager of the whole network, will be here to helpfully talk through those things. It's helpful that maybe that I don't just talk about all the specifics of money and all those kind of things. So we'll have the leadership team and Andrew do that so that you can practically think about how you can be generous in giving. Why? Why do we do these things? Well, there's lots, there's many reasons why. I've got lots of other ideas that I've got here on this sheet, but I'm actually going to leave them and finish with the most important reason. It's because it's what's on the back of your outline is why we think about these things. Beck, um, who's been coming to grow for a while, young adult. She, she, um, and I asked her a few questions and she put them on the back there. She has been coming because she was invited to come and she's become a Christian in the last little while. That's why we do this. And on that week, in a couple of weeks in Bold Mission, uh, Beck's going to come and be baptized. How good is that? That is why we do these things. It's very exciting. It's fantastic. And I look forward to hearing from that and to hearing um, from Beck. Uh, one of the challenges in being in, in uh, hospitality is sometimes you can come and sometimes you can't. And so Beck can get to young adults every week where she couldn't come at all. But and now she can't come on Sundays, but she can come that week. So it's going to be fantastic. That is what matters. That people seeing Jesus and remembering that this is not about a guilt trip. This is not about a money grab. And this is not about trying to earn favour with God. If we ever do that, we are in disobedience to God and it's a disaster. If it's a money grab, we've forgotten that God wants to grab our hearts, not our money. If we think about money out of guilt... We're forgetting that generosity is a joy that's self-sacrificial love. And if we think in some way this helps me earn my salvation, we've just destroyed the gospel of grace. It's an indescribable gift. Brothers and sisters, my heart for you today is that you will ask God to help you to be more generous in all of life, because of his generosity to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the indescribable gift of your Son is spectacular. As your people, just help us to be more willing foster a generous heart that your spirit will transform our hearts into your son.
Help us to always be above reproach. Help us to understand that giving is, there's seasons for giving in how much we can give, the changes. But always with a generous heart. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.